Kia ora and welcome. As um, Andrew said, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 22. Um, before we do, I'll just say a quick prayer and it will give you time to find it in your Bible as well. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we are here today. Thank you that we're here to um, spend time with you, spend time fellowshipping with um, your family. Thank you um, for the word that we're about to have read to us and for the challenge that it will set to us. Please challenge our minds and touch our hearts as we hear that, and that we will go away changed. Thank you. Amen. So there's a few um, sections of this uh, chapter, so I'll read those along as we um, go to help us find our way. Matthew chapter 22, the parable of the wedding banquet. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Paying the imperial tax to Caesar. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They bought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Marriage at the Resurrection. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him who, with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, 
whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given a marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. The greatest commandment. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with the question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like this, Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Whose son is the Messiah? While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, How can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Thanks, Felicity. Uh, Well, good morning. My name's Andy. I'm one of the pastors here at City on a Hill. Uh, Great to see some new faces. I'd love to see you at Newish. Uh, It'll run roughly for an hour, a bit longer than 45 minutes, but we'll hopefully be done by one, so... Um, even if you have afternoon plans, please stick around. Uh, we'd love to introduce you to our church. Um, it's a bit hot. Uh, there's a lot to get through. And some of it's a bit heavy. So how about we uh, start by prayer? Let's pray. Um, Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are at work whenever your word is proclaimed truthfully. And We pray that you would help me to speak truth. And whatever it is that you want to say to each of us this morning, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work through your word to convict us of the truth and transform our lives so that we might have a much bigger picture of Jesus, a picture that he deserves to have in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever underestimated someone? Um, I underestimated my first ever girlfriend on our first, well, my first ever date. Uh, I was 15. Um, We went and saw a movie together, as you do when you're 15 and going on a date. Um, And after the movie, there's there's those little arcades in the movie theatre, and she suggested a game of air hockey. Uh, Now, it happens that I love air hockey, and um, I'm quite good at it, I must say. Um, I love the the speed and the angles, and uh, plus, let's just say my date, she wasn't vertically gifted. Um, At age 15, I was pretty much as tall as I am now, and I reckon I had a good 15 centimetres longer arms than her, so I thought I had this sorted. Um, But it was our first date. I didn't want to make her feel bad. 
Um, so I let her score a couple of goals. Uh, and then I started trying a little bit harder, um, but she just kept scoring goals. And before I knew it, she'd won the game. Uh, and so I thought to, to myself, all right, I must be nervous, uh, which is fair enough. Another game, I suggested, um, and she beat me again. Uh, I must have been holding back without realizing it. There's some kind of subconscious thing about not actually wanting to win, but this time my pride was on the line. Come on, Williams, pull yourself together. So I pulled out all the stops, all the moves, all the power, but I had nothing. She smashed me three games, three losses. And out of desperation, I suggested a fourth game, but at this stage, she said she was a bit bored, which is fair enough. <laughs> and we went and got Burger King for lunch. But I grossly underestimated my opponent. And in this section of Matthew, while we see the Jewish leaders, they grossly underestimate Jesus. They see him as this ignorant nobody uh, from this backwater town of Galilee. And now he's on their territory. He's in Jerusalem. He's here in the temple courts. And this is their jurisdiction. And he's already had the audacity to clear out the money changes of the temple. And he's drawing crowds. He's, he's teaching these radical things. Uh, and more importantly, he's subverting their authority. This nobody has accused them the authorities on the Torah and on God of missing the mark when it comes to the truth about God and his kingdom. He hasn't done it directly, but through parables, cryptic stories that are taking a dig at them, undermining their authority on all things religious, on the things they are the experts in. And so he needs to be dealt with. But it's going to be a little tricky, not because he's a formidable opponent, but because of his following. You can see it there at the end of chapter 21, verse 46. The Jewish leaders were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Uh, by the way, it'd be helpful to have a Bible open in front of you. We're going to be working our way through Matthew chapter 22. Um, and if you're following along on the outlines, um, in my haste, I didn't do the spacing right, so... Uh, don't worry, the wedding banquet will take up a lot of the talk, even though it doesn't take up much of the outline. Uh, but Matthew 22, this threat that needs to be dealt with. See, if the Jewish leaders play their cards wrong, well, it might backfire. The, the crowds might actually listen to Jesus and turn away from their authority. So the Jewish leaders have got to be clever about dealing with this threat. But what we'll see is that it's not the crowd they should be afraid of. See, these Jewish leaders have massively underestimated Jesus. And it's not just the Jewish leaders, is it? We're all in danger of making the same mistake, of underestimating Jesus. And so the question for all of us this morning is, have you underestimated Jesus? Do you really take Jesus as seriously as you need to? It's an important question, perhaps the most important question you can ever ask. Because the consequences are massive. See, if you underestimate Jesus, and I mean even for those of us who think we know him, well, we might just find ourselves on the outside, in the darkness, cut off from God forever. 
So our goal this morning is to value Jesus more. Because it's not possible to value Jesus too highly. And it's very easy to undervalue him, to underestimate him. So let's get into it. Um, So this chapter, as you saw, is divided into two main sections. There's a parable at the start, and then um, uh, the second section is this series of questions between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. And throughout the chapter, we see this tension ramping up between uh, Jesus and his opponents. Uh, So let's start with the parable, uh, uh, the parable of the wedding banquet. Now, a parable, it's a story uh, that is designed and told to teach something. And like most of his parables, this parable, uh, Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of God. And as we read, it's the story of a king who prepares a banquet for his son. He gets it all ready. And when the time comes, his his guests don't want to come. So he sends out another wave of servants, but the guests pay no attention, which is ridiculous, right? I mean, if you're invited to a royal wedding... Why would you turn that down? But even more ridiculous than not coming, just like the parable of the tenants, if you were here last week, some of the invited guests for this royal wedding, they don't just politely decline. No, in verse 6, they attack the king's servants and kill them. Do you see how outlandish that is? The king of all people, the king's son is getting married. And not only do their guests refuse to come, they kill the servants who came to announce it. And so the king is rightly enraged. He sends out his army to destroy these people and burn their city to the ground. But he's still got this huge banquet ready. So he sends more servants. And this time he extends the invitation to everyone, the good and the bad, the rich and the poor. Well, probably more the poor, actually, because the rich have already declined. They're told to grab anyone they can find. And the hall is filled with guests. Now, it's pretty clear that Jesus' parable is directed mainly at the Jewish leaders. And by extension, the whole nation of Israel. See, these first guests the ones who refuse to come, the ones who mistreat the king's servants. These are the Jewish leaders. Jesus is saying, you are in a privileged position. You're at the top of the invite list for the kingdom of God. But instead, you've ignored and even killed his prophets. And now God's son has come. And instead of celebrating him and welcoming him, you've rejected him. Now you're trying to arrest him. And pretty soon you're going to try it and you're going to succeed in killing him. See, the Jewish leaders have underestimated Jesus. They've failed to see that he is not some hick from the backwater town. He is the son of God. And instead of listening to him, they're plotting how they can arrest and silence him. And eventually kill him. These men who profess to know God, they're going to kill the Son of God. And so judgment is coming on them. They're going to be wiped out. There's even a mention here of their city being destroyed, uh, which is perhaps a prophetic reference to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, which will happen within their lifetime. And in their place, 
God is going to extend the invitation to his kingdom to all people of all nations. See, for centuries, the people of God had been confined to the one nation of Israel. But with the coming of Jesus and with his own people failing to recognize him, the kingdom of God bursts forth beyond Judea into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And 2,000 years later, here we are on the other side of the world, and the invitation has come to us. But it's not just geography, is it? See, the Jewish leaders have underestimated God's generosity. They couldn't imagine that God's son would reject them, the most pious of religious people, and instead welcome the lowly. See, this man is welcoming tax collectors and sinners. He's eating with prostitutes and paupers, even Samaritans, even Gentiles. So what about us? Have we underestimated God's generosity? How far are we willing to extend the invitation? Are we willing to go to the street corners to invite the social outcasts to the wedding feast of the sun? Are we willing to put aside our prejudices and embrace people who might consider church a place where they don't belong because they don't feel worthy? And some people think that they're not worthy to be here. They smell bad. They're drunk. They don't know how to manage a social situation. Are we willing to welcome them? as brothers and sisters. Because that's the heart of Jesus, isn't it? He welcomes us with open arms. Everyone is welcome. And let's face it, none of us have it all together, do we? We're all sinners who need saving. We all need Jesus. Have you underestimated Jesus' generosity? He welcomes everyone with open arms. But what about the end of the parable? Did you notice the chilling scene when the king finds one of the guests who missed the mark when it came to the dress code? Now, is this anyone's worst nightmare? Like, have you ever rocked up to something and just completely missed the memo on the dress code? I'm pretty sure I've been to a few parties where it said dress up, but no one actually took that seriously except for me. But I actually love that, so that's fine. But for you, it might be like horrifying to think, you know, you enter a room and there's the hum of conversation and then one person notices you and another person, and then there's silence and everyone's just staring at you because of what you're wearing. Anyway, as embarrassing or as out of place as missing the dress code is, nothing compares to what happens with this guy. Have a look with me in verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited but few are chosen. It's shocking, isn't it? 
It's, it's so, such a, a whiplash. I mean, we've seen the amazing generosity of the king flinging wide the doors of this wedding banquet to everyone, the good and the bad. And suddenly he seems so harsh, so judgmental. I mean, it's not like this guy's hurting anyone. He's just not dressed properly. I mean, give him a break. He, he was on the street an hour ago. He wasn't expecting to be invited to a royal wedding today. I mean, can he even afford wedding clothes? Maybe he just doesn't know the etiquette. Did, did anyone tell him he had to wear wedding clothes? How do we make sense of this? Well, Jesus isn't concerned with clothing here. Remember, it's a parable. It's pointing to something. And it's teaching us that the kingdom of God is not to be trifled with. This man has insulted the king and his son by not wearing wedding clothes to the royal wedding. And when he's challenged, he doesn't offer any reason. His silence reveals a guilty conscience. See, he's come for the goodies without any thought for the reason for the feast. Sure, I'll grab a free feed. But you don't just rock up to a royal wedding in your jandals and and shorts. Sorry, Howard. Um, You'll at least have to wear your wedding jandals. But in all seriousness, Jesus' open invitation to all people, it's not something to be taken advantage of. You're underestimating Jesus if you think you can get away with just coming for the goodies. If you only come to Jesus for what you can get out of him, If you come for the perks, but dishonor the son, he'll cast you out. Notice the chilling words again in verse 14. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Many are invited. Remember, Jesus is incredibly generous. Anyone can receive God's forgiveness, no matter what you've done. The gates are open. It's a free gift from God. That's what we sing about when we sing Amazing Grace. A free gift bought with the precious blood of Christ. See, none of us have earned the right to attend a royal wedding. But if you come to Jesus and receive forgiveness, but have no intention of changing your life, no intention of living for Jesus the King, no intention of turning away from sin and towards righteousness, then you insult the King. You've come for the goodies, but disregarded the son. And so I'm sorry, but you're not one of the chosen. Few are chosen. Most don't take up the invitation. And some take up the invitation, but don't honor the king or his son. And they'll be kicked out. It's sobering, isn't it? So it's worth asking ourselves, have we just come for the goodies? Perhaps it's the offer of a fulfilling life, of purpose, of hope, of forgiveness. Perhaps you just love the idea of being part of a community of loving people who will genuinely care for you. Perhaps you see Jesus as your answer to get you through the hardest times. Or perhaps this amazing promise of eternal life. Entry into his eternal kingdom. 
of these things, they are freely on offer to, to anyone who would come to the Son. They are free to anyone who will trust in Jesus. But we mustn't take Jesus for granted. We need to recognize he's not just our savior, he's our king. As forgiven sinners, he calls us to leave our life of sin and to live for him. And we will fail. We will constantly need to keep coming back to our Savior, to the foot of the cross and seek forgiveness. And he will keep forgiving us. But if we don't even try, if we're just here for what we can get out of him, then we dishonor the Son and we'll be cast out from his presence into utter darkness. Are you underestimating Jesus? He's both supremely generous the Savior who welcomes anyone who would come to him, and the terrifying Lord who will cast out those who think they can come for a free ride. Which brings us to the second section where we see the Jewish leaders go toe-to-toe with Jesus, uh, and they completely underestimate him. They're not asking these questions of Jesus uh, to learn from him. No, they're looking... uh, Uh, Where is it? Verse 15 there. They're trying to trap him in his words. They're trying to force Jesus into a corner, uh, force him to say something heretical or politically sensitive, something to give them a reason to arrest him without stirring up the crowds. But they've massively underestimated Jesus. They think they're dealing with a disrespectful, uninformed, reckless, so-called prophet from a backwater town, but in reality, they're face to face with the Son of God. And you can't argue your way around Jesus. So round one, the Pharisees team up with the Herodians to try and trap Jesus with a political question. Um, Now they start by trying to butter him up, uh, flattering him with this backhanded comment, teacher, they say, which is really ironic, right? Because they're not planning to learn anything from this teacher. Teacher, your allegiance uh, to God, it's to God, isn't it? Not to the Romans. You don't even pay attention to who we are. And we, well, you should respect us because we're the leaders of the Jewish people. So surely you don't respect Rome. So, teacher, should we pay this imperial tax to these Roman imposters? Do you see the trap? If Jesus takes the bait, they'll dob him into the Romans and he'll be arrested as a revolutionary. But if he says they should pay the tax, well, then he'll put offside all those zealous Jews who think that the Romans should be overthrown. But do you see the brilliance in Jesus' response? He knows exactly what they're doing and he doesn't just dodge the trap. No, he exposes their hypocrisy and he teaches a timeless principle about how to manage authorities and money and taxes, all in a few sentences. But before he even opens his mouth, do you notice how Jesus doesn't just answer the question? He gets them to get a coin out. He gets them to get the coin. See, Jesus doesn't have a Roman coin on him. But guess who's sucking up to the Romans by using their currency? 
Guess who's carrying a coin with the image of Caesar on it and an inscription that calls Caesar divine? Considered by many Jews to be idolatrous. It's the Pharisees. Such hypocrites. He exposes their hypocrisy. And you can imagine Jesus tossing the coin back and says, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. In other words, you don't have to choose between loyalty to Caesar and loyalty to God. God is our king, but there are certain things we're to respect about human authorities, including paying taxes. See, the Romans, they upheld law and order. They, they built roads and protected the trade routes. And so the Romans were entitled to taxes. But Jesus adds, give to God what is God's. In other words, we must never allow our loyalty to any human authority to become worship or to get in the way of our worship of God. There is time for civil disobedience, but anarchy done in the name of loyalty to God is not the way. Do you see Jesus' brilliance here? In one short phrase, he silences his opponents, exposes their hypocrisy, and teaches a timeless principle about respecting human authorities while still having God as our king. It's brilliant, isn't it? Round one to Jesus. And look at their reaction in verse 22. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now for round two, uh, it's time for another group of leaders, the Sadducees. They come in with a theological curveball. Now, you know where the Sadducees get their name right? Oldest Bible joke in the book. Yeah, they don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad. You see? Uh, they, I was expecting more groans than that. Um, they, they also only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, um, and they minimized anything supernatural like angels or miracles, um, which are more reasons why they were sad, you see. Um, but they came to Jesus with a question that all the youth kids must have been asking at this time. And it's actually a very interesting question. I mean, if your spouse passes away and you remarry, which is perfectly legitimate, um, whether it's by the Mosaic law of fulfilling your duty to your family, which is not for Christians, by the way, but if you remarry someone, there's this real possibility you'll have two spouses in heaven, right? Uh, so what will your relationship with them be? It's, it's a real prospect for some. But, but the way they ask it, well, it's almost theatrical. I mean, it's realistic that the, this could happen two or three times in a lifetime, but seven times? It's a, a bit ridiculous. They're, they're actually making a mockery of the idea of resurrection here. And they're trying to trap Jesus with a question he can't answer. But again, he not only nails the answer with the confidence of someone who has inside information about heaven, but in the process, Jesus undermines their whole school of thought about miracles and angels and resurrection with a scripture that they would have known well from their own scriptures. As he recalls a miracle where the living God speaks and identifies himself to Moses in the present tense with three people who were long dead by the time of Moses. He's not the God of the dead, but the living Jesus, again, exposes these so-called experts for the hypocrites they are, for not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. 
Now, as an aside, do you realize it's possible to be in error when it comes to the Scriptures? Do you see there? You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. We don't like to talk to people about getting the Scriptures wrong, do we? It sounds arrogant to our postmodern sensibilities. We say things like, well, the way I read the passage is, or, or that's your interpretation, but my interpretation is different. And it sounds humble, and humility is important. But do you see, there is right and wrong when it comes to Scripture. There are things that the Scriptures say and things that the Scriptures don't say. There is a resurrection coming. The dead will be raised, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting judgment. And in the resurrection, we will be like the angels. And because marriage is an earthly institution, there will be no marriage in heaven. These things are not open to interpretation. They are what the Bible says, quite plainly. You can see it for yourself. Now, uh, if you're worried about getting to heaven and not being able to hang out with your wife or your husband, um, it doesn't say there's no love in heaven. So, I don't know, interpret that how you want, but I'm just speculating. Um, but what we do know is there's no marriage in heaven. And so the Sadducees are silenced. And the crowds, do you see in verse 33, they're astonished. Round two to Jesus. And now for round three, the, the Pharisees send out one of their heavies. Um, they underestimated Jesus with the imperial tax question. Um, they only sent some disciples and some Herodians that time. Now they've seen the Sadducees uh, get shot down by the scriptures. So Jesus obviously knows the Bible. Um, so this time they send one of their experts, one, a teacher of teachers. It's time to school Jesus on the law. And this expert, he asked Jesus to choose the greatest commandment in the law. Now, I think it's perhaps a trick question. The right answer they're looking for is, oh, there's no greater commandment. All the laws uh, are divine. Um, or perhaps they're trying to nail Jesus on the Sabbath because he's been accused of breaking the Sabbath. Um, but either way, Jesus answers again profoundly, without hesitation, with absolute precision and undeniable truth. The greatest commandment is not one of the Ten Commandments. It's a brilliant summary of the whole law of God taken straight from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And then he gives them a bonus, uh, the second greatest command. This is actually from an obscure part of Leviticus of all places, but no less profound. Love your neighbor as yourself. Two simple phrases taken directly from Scripture, but summarizing all of the law. All Ten Commandments can be summarized. Love God, love your neighbor. All 613 commands of Torah, love God, love your neighbor. And Matthew records no response from the teacher of teachers. But you can imagine this expert in the law is speechless. He's undeniably brilliant, isn't he? Round three to Jesus. 
And so now it's Jesus' turn to ask the questions. He heads over to the Pharisees. They're cowering in the corner and have in stunned silence, wondering what to do next. And he asks them about the Messiah. Who is he? Whose son is he? And their answer is correct. The Messiah is the son of God. That's not open to, uh, sorry, the Messiah is the son of David. That's their answer. It's an undeniable truth of Scripture. The Messiah would be one of David's descendants. But their answer is revealing. See, they've underestimated Jesus once again. They've underestimated the Messiah because he's not just a king in David's line. He will be the Son of God. In fact, God the Son, God incarnate. Jesus points out to them in Psalm 110, David calls the Messiah Lord. See, the Messiah isn't just going to be a new king in David's line. He's going to surpass David in every sense. Because in Jesus, God himself has come to establish his kingdom on earth. And so verse 46, from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. They've massively underestimated their opponent, right? What about you? Are you trying to outsmart Jesus with your questions about Christianity and your objections? Your questions of whether he actually rose from the dead or how the Bible came to be or Chinese whispers throughout the centuries? Are you trying to dodge the king of life? Are you coming to him for the goodies and not recognize him recognizing him as Lord to whom you owe everything. Jesus is the majestic Son of God. So come to him. Receive that free gift of forgiveness, of life in his name. But don't stop there. Make him Lord of your life. And if you've already done all that, never underestimate Jesus. Don't underestimate his generosity. Don't underestimate his lordship. Don't underestimate his wisdom. You can't overvalue Jesus. I'm going to invite the band up. uh, And in a moment, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing a song that lifts our eyes to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. Come and behold him, our majestic King Jesus.